Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Welcome, and you're listening to The Economist's weekly podcast on technology and science called Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukier, senior editor at The Economist, and on this week's show, the debate about internet regulation looks set to fire up again. So the losers, in the end, could be the consumer because they don't have the choice of services they otherwise would have. Also on the show, scientists are using genetically engineered bacteria to detect landmines. So the idea is scatter these bugs on the ground and where the mines are they will fluoresce and you can detect that by scanning the site with a laser. And also on this episode voice production technology is becoming so good that it could start to blur the lines between reality and deceit. We are going to no doubt see all sorts of abuses from fake news to someone leaving a voicemail on uh, their boss's phone with all sorts of outrageous statements from a disliked colleague. But first, the debate about whether or not to regulate the internet and maintain equality for all data has been underway for years. With new measures to be announced this month, it could flare up again. The new head of America's Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai, is expected to lean towards lighter regulations for internet providers. So could the move stifle innovation and who looks to gain in the long run. Ludwig Ziegela is our technology editor, and he joins me now to discuss this. Welcome, Ludwig. Hello. What is meant by the term network neutrality? That is a very good question, because if you asked five or six experts, you get 10 opinions. Well, let's go back in the history of the internet. The internet was built as, as a network. Anybody could kind of access and, and send things over. There, was no, there were no rules. And there was no way of kind of telling the different traffic or sorts of traffic apart. So the network was neutral. There was permissionless innovation. People could do whatever they wanted. And that kind of created that fountain of innovation. Now, things have changed. Kind of the internet went mainstream. There's more technology to tell traffic apart. Of course, bigger ISPs, internet service providers, may have an interest in charging more for certain types of traffic. We have video, which is now, I think, 80% of traffic on the internet. So things, things have become more commercial. So initially, the network treated all packets equally. Everyone had the same quality of service. And whether I was doing a video chat or an email or sending a commercial transaction, it all cost the same amount of money. Everybody's traffic was was treated equally. It wasn't a question of charging anybody, but there was made an effort to treat all packets equally. Let's put it this way. Okay. So why do some parties want to change that? One motivation is, for example, if you have a company like Netflix or a company that, that sends a lot of video over the network, takes kind of a large share of the bandwidth, you may want to charge more for that so they kind of throttle that traffic or so for for basic network management. You also may want to charge because you can... Uh, you may want to charge one provider of a video stream because you have your own content and want to kind of favor that content. So there's plenty of reasons why you want to do that. So in other words, what you're saying is that these rules would now put up toll booths on the underlying infrastructure of the network. So there was a big fight about network neutrality in 2014. And then finally, 
the then chairman of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, decided, okay, let's let's mandate network neutrality. He had to do some legal stuff, which is a bit complicated, but he basically said that. And, and so people thought that the debate is over. The ISPs weren't too happy, but things finally accepted that. And now comes in the new president, uh, appoints a new chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, who is much more liberally or free market minded, says, we want to change that. The FCC doesn't want to intervene. We don't want uh, ISPs regulated like the phone network and uh, wants to kind of introduce new rules. And he's probably going to do that by the end of the month. So is this a good thing or a bad thing? The defenders of network neutrality, of course, think that's a terrible thing because what, what Pi wants to do is basically pull the FCC out of enforcing any network neutrality rules and ask the FTC, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, another American agency, to take over that, uh, that control. And the way it's supposed to work is that ISP basically, in their terms of services, will say, we're going to, uh, comply with these rules. We're not going to throttle any traffic or discriminate an, a, against any traffic. And if they don't, then the FCC basically can intervene and say, you've promised this, but you don't do it. Uh, uh, so you have to pay a fine or change your practices. Sounds reasonable. What's wrong with it? So w- what happens if, if for example, the uh, the ISPs uh, in a couple of years or one ISP says, oh, I'm going to change how I define network neutrality? then the FTC can do nothing. The FTC also doesn't have as much engineering expertise as the FCC, so they may not actually understand what's happening in the network. So critiques of that approach say it's basically a voluntary approach and uh, it won't help any if, if, if ASPs really want to be bad. You know, in the world of technology policy, every regulation creates winners and losers, and it depends on whose side you're on. So who's the winner and who's the loser? The winner are the ISPs because if they want to charge more for network management or if they want to have fast lanes for for certain, uh, let's say, Internet of uh, Things applications or medical applications where you have to have fast connections, they they can make more money. So it it makes things somewhat easier for for these guys. At the same time, I think uh, the the entire industry has moved towards accepting network neutrality. I think that the debate is no longer as as, uh, strong or intense as it was. So the losers won't lose that much, so they're not really complaining. The losers in the long run, you, you may lose quite a lot, not in the next two years, but in 10 years, depending on how the market evolves, you may have a lot of toll booths and other choke points on the internet. And that could slow down innovation. Definitely it can. So the losers in the end could be the consumer because they don't have the choice of services they otherwise would have. Ludwig, thank you. Thanks. What do you think? What is the right balance between regulation, consumer welfare, and creating an enabling environment for industry? At Babbage, we'd like to hear your views. Please email us at radio at economist.com. Next, our world is littered with landmines. Even long after war-torn countries are at peace, people continue to be killed by them. And the numbers of recent conflicts in Libya, Syria, Ukraine, and Yemen are adding to the problem. But discovering and then disabling landmines is difficult, costly, and of course, dangerous. Help may now be at hand, however, from genetically engineered bacteria that can hunt for the mines. Paul Markley, our innovation editor, is here to discuss it with us. Hello, Paul. Hello, Ken. So first, what are the sorts of techniques that are currently used? Well, there's a number. I mean, the metal detector was the oldest and most trusted, but of course, many mines today are made out of plastic, so they don't succumb to metal detectors very easy, although sometimes the firing mechanisms are still made out of metal. So they're still used, but, you know, they're much harder to find. People come up with all sorts of ingenious ways to look for them and to destroy them. You can have 
giant armour-plated machines that flail the land to set off landmines and robots that crawl over them with ground-penetrating radar. There's lots of high-tech kit like that. The problem there, though, is that if you blow up mines on site, you tend to scatter the shrapnel and explosive residue around, and that makes it rather hard to confirm that there's no undetected devices remaining. Animals are quite good because mines eventually, most explosives, give off very minute traces of vapour, even when buried in the ground, and you can train animals to detect these. Dogs can be used, but dogs can be fairly heavy. They can trigger mines. Rats are more successful. They've been very useful in Angola, finding mines. The rats are very expensive to train, about $8,000 a time, because they obviously have to go to mine hunting school for a period before they can be used. So there's various ways of doing it, but often they have drawbacks and cutbacks. And, and so eventually what happens is you end up with the most basic technique, which is people in blast-resistant clothing crawling along, gently prodding the ground ahead, looking for buried objects. Slow, laborious and dangerous, but it does work. That sounds awful. So the good news is that genetically engineered bacteria can help us? That's right. A team at the um, Hebrew University of Jerusalem have genetically modified a bacteria, the old uh, E. coli, which is often used by geneticists uh, widely to carry out experiments. And this bacterium has been modified so that it produces a fluorescent protein when it detects vapors from explosives. So the idea is scatter these bugs on the ground and where the mines are, they will fluoresce. And you can detect that by scanning the site with a laser and identifying where the mines are. Is it safe to let these things go into the environment? Well, they engineer the bacterium so that it is safe, but to be extra sure, it's encased in a bead. And uh, within there, its food source is available. And it's it's specially engineered that once that source dries up, this bacterium dies. So uh, that should make it quite safe to be used in the environment. And in their tests, it's proved quite successful in detecting uh, buried mines. Okay. And when do we think this technique will be ready to be used in the field? Well, the group think they're about three years away from coming up with a working mine dissection system they can demonstrate. They need to improve the bacteria which they're working on and the, and the material used for the beads. And they also hope to shrink the laser detection equipment, perhaps to the point where they could use it in a drone that flies over the land and thus covers a lot of ground very quickly. Paul, thank you very much. Pleasure, Ken. Finally, you can be sure that I'm really here in the studio, saying these words. Trust me. But voice technology has progressed to the point that it is now possible to imitate people's speech patterns precisely. This may prove extremely useful, but the consequences could be troubling too. Joining us on the line with the story is our science correspondent, Benjamin Sutherland. Ben, nice to have you on the show. Great to be here. Great. So first, tell us What is this technology? Well, the technology is uh, frequently known as voice cloning. Essentially, uh, companies a few decades ago started to work out ways to allow people to who are going to lose their voice to to voice bank it. Uh, Essentially, speak enough phrases in a sound studio before they lose their voice, say perhaps after some sort of throat cancer, so that they can type words once they've lost their voice and have the machine uh, recreate the voice. It's a a process known as text-to-speech. But that's essentially remained a niche 
uh, application for for people who are losing their voice, partly because of the cost. Uh, not only does it take uh, at least a few thousand dollars to uh, to do that, but you often have to spend uh, a day or even more in the studio repeating lots of phrases. And uh, what's happening is that now a number of companies, uh, including Baidu uh, in China, uh, a French startup by the name of Candy Voice and an Israeli firm by the name of Vivotext are putting together uh, cheap apps that allow people to rec- to clone their voice by speaking, say, less than a couple hundred phrases into a smartphone. Okay, so... I have to ask, how does this technology work? Essentially, the software takes the the bits of speech and breaks them down into very, very tiny slices, some of them just uh, five milliseconds long. It annotates each of those slices with with an exact pitch, which can be changed by the software later according to the type of phrase that needs to be constructed. And it, uh, it, it stores all those slices in, in a library. When someone types a phrase, the software goes to find the slices of speech that it needs in order to recreate that phrase. And it fetches them, delivers them seamlessly, and, and reproduces new speech, but with uh, a synthetic voice that sounds pretty darn close to the original voice that was uh, recorded. So this seems to be a cute, fun little technology for a parlor trick among teenagers. On the other hand, it sounds like one could easily record the voice of the of a president and then play it back saying that he wants to bomb another country and raising huge panic among the populace. So I'm sure people have thought about the malicious potential for this technology. How do they plan to solve it? We are going to, no doubt, see all sorts of abuses from fake news to someone leaving a voicemail on uh, their boss's phone with all sorts of outrageous statements from a disliked colleague. The companies are saying that what they're working on is developing a watermark technology. There are a few problems with that. Number one, a lot of people who who are going to hear these statements, these fake statements, aren't going to bother with some sort of forensic analysis for the watermark technology. And in any case, the watermark technology is really only going to work if the the recording is played back from the software directly from the device that that created it. So it sounds like there's no perfect solution. I wonder if there's an interim one, and it's this. We know that with photocopiers, whenever the photocopy detects that someone is trying to photocopy an American currency note, uh, it doesn't actually copy it because it knows that it's been programmed to identify it and therefore not copy it. And all the companies that make photocopiers comply with the law. Could a similar technology be used, at least for some of these commercial apps, in which they identify the voice of a famous person, like President Trump, and therefore don't allow the recreation of that voice? I don't think that's practical, Kenneth, for a a few reasons. Number one, it's not illegal to imitate someone's voice. Uh, There are many laws in place that prevent impersonation, but any comedian can get up and imitate anyone's voice they want. So the the legality of that type of a system is is already is tricky. Now, it's conceivable that you could have some sort of a regime put in place to, quote-unquote, protect the voices 
uh, and therefore the identity of certain extremely high-level figures. But what about a mayor of a small town in Turkey? The, the number of people who are holding positions of power across the world is, you know, numbered in the millions, depending on how you define it. And I just don't see that as a workable solution. That's really interesting. And it sort of adds a whole new dimension to the term free speech. Listen, Ben Sutherland, if this is really Ben Sutherland, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed uh, being on your show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Babbage. If you did, please take a moment to rate it through your favorite podcast app or on iTunes. And if you like our content, consider subscribing to the paper at subscription.economist.com. If you have any thoughts about this week's show or any of our audio journalism, email us at radio at economist.com. In London, this is the Economist. 